This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good evening. Welcome to Plato's Cave here on 3RRR, 102.7 FM. We are a film criticism show. We're going to be with you for the next hour talking about three new films that are in Australia at the moment. My name is Thomas Cordwell. Cerise Howard is uh, not with us tonight. In fact, she's going to be away for quite a few weeks. Um, Alexandra Helen Nicholas is also absent tonight, but she will be back next week. So I'm joined once more by Josh Nelson. Good evening, Josh. Good evening. Now, last week, we, again, we did a show solo, just you and I, and we made several jokes about the fact it was going to be a, a slightly blokey show, just being the two of us. Yep, unintentionally fellow Exactly. And every second-rate comedian on Twitter got in touch to very affectionately give us a hard time about that. It was actually quite funny. One of those people is also a long-term subscriber and listener to Plato's Cave. Uh, She has worked for the Melbourne International Film Festival and the Human Rights Arts and Film Festival. She's a resident film reviewer for Saturday Breakfast on ABC 720 Perth and currently works for Triple R sponsor Cinema Nova. But most of all, she gave us a hard time on Twitter and subscribed. So we've invited her to be a guest presenter on tonight's episode of Plato's Cave. Hayley Inch, welcome to Triple R. Oh, thank you very much. If I'd known that making jokes about cock forests on Twitter would get you on radio, I'd be doing it every week. That's all it takes. That's, that's, in fact, I think there's several commercial stations. That's their recruitment uh, process. Possibly the first person to say cock forest in the cave too. Well done. Oh, excellent. Good. <laughs> just, just marking up first tonight. Welcome, Hayley. On tonight's show, we're going to be exploring questions of how to represent the truth. Whose version of events do we believe and what are the ethical obligations to deliver the facts? We're going to be in conventional thriller territory with The Gift. Written, directed, produced and starring Joel Edgerton as a man who delivers something of a reality check for an old schoolmate. We're then going to go to the biopic Straight Outta Compton, which looks at the rise and fall of the highly influential late 1980s hip-hop group N.W.A. Many of the subjects of this film were directly involved in making it, which is one of the many issues I'm sure we're going to discuss. And we'll finish by taking a look at The Face of an Angel by Michael Winterbottom. We didn't get a chance to see this when it screened at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image in June, but it's now available on home entertainment. We thought we would take a look now. It's a fictionalised account of a 2007 murder, the, the, the 2007 murder of Meredith Kircher, uh, and it's about a filmmaker attempting to make a fictionalised film of a real-life murder. We'll explain all that towards the end of the show when we get to it. But let's start off with The Gift. Yeah, so The Gift is the featured directorial debut of Joel Edgerton. He's a writer-director on this film after his writing work on The Square, Felony and The Rover. And this is pretty much, I think, in the pocket of the psychological thriller genre. And in saying that, I think this is a polished genre film. It stars Jason Bateman and Rebecca Hall. They're very much a middle-class couple. He works in security. She's an interior designer. Uh, They've recently relocated from Chicago to LA. And one of their first outings, they bump into Gordon, played by Joel Edgerton, or as the Bateman character refers to him, Gordo the Weirdo, because he recognises Gordon from, from back in his LA days in his past as a a former schoolmate and what takes place is that Gordo starts to ingratiate himself on their lifestyle more to the happiness of of the Rebecca Hall character than the the Jason Bateman character and what unfolds is I guess a thriller in in which the Gordo character and the emergence of Gordo becomes a, a catalyst of bringing to a head certain secrets hidden from the various characters' past. 
was pretty much won over by this film, I have to say, particularly in, t- in, that, in that genre uh, context. And I felt that Edgerton's strength as a filmmaker here was to create a real sense of unease, which I think he carries for the most part throughout the entire film. Tonally, this film feels less like a kind of fatal attraction 80s thriller than it does almost uh, like a Michael Haneke cachet territory, particularly in terms of the way in which he deals with class and the violation of spaces. And I think you could sort of talk about this idea of violation of spaces in a broad sense in terms of not just residential spaces, but physical spaces and imaginary spaces. And I think, I guess one of the strengths of this film is the blurring of the boundaries between good and and, and evil in terms of the characters and maybe breaking a bit from um, tradition, but also the fact that, and this is where I was most concerned where this film was heading, it doesn't pull a twist out of the pocket. This is not an M. Night Shyamalan film that rests on some magical deus ex machina twist and i i really appreciated that yes i i really enjoyed this film as well and i was surprised by how much i did enjoy it i think michael haneke is a really interesting director to compare this to um i don't think anyone saw this happen coming joel edgerton's first film as a director would kind of be such a strong accomplished well-made film but also evoke some of these european masters the one who came to my mind was roman polanski particularly in the the the, the cinematography how it's often the camera is ever so slightly positioned so you can't quite see the person who's talking or or there's sometimes noticeable kind of empty spaces in the frame where you've constantly got that anxiety of is there something that's going to pop up there that shouldn't be there but that, that core dynamic between the three people which goes all the way back to Polanski's Knife in the Water and he's played with this for quite a while and as have other directors, this idea of you know, you've got this seemingly normal safe, happy couple and then this this intruder comes in who who is very disquieting, who upsets the order. And part of the reason this intruder is so successful is the couple are trying to stay polite and stay within the social normalities and graces. So they kind of let the intruder do probably more than they really should do before they, they snap and then it all goes horribly wrong. But what I like about this film and some, at least some of these films of the past when they're at their best is we actually get the... Um, the the, 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 the supposedly normal couple become exposed and we see the deep flaws in their relationship and in themselves. And what I really dug about this film is how it focused increasingly on the, the wife in the film and how you know she begins distrusting Gordo, but she ends up also very much distrusting her own husband for quite good reason. And we start to find out a lot about him. And he, you know, he, has, he has a past, he has a history that Gordo is starting to bring back to the surface. It's return of the repressed time. And it's not cool. And she's kind of caught in the middle of these two two men not too sure who she should really be sympathising with and who's the most dangerous one. Yeah, I very much watched this film in terms of thinking about genre, but I was thinking of a slightly different genre in the um, uh, the kind of like the, 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 the repressed woman film and the paranoid women's thriller. Oh, yeah. So kind of yep, like, you know, your, your early um, uh, Hollywood Hitchcock like Rebecca and Suspicion and things like that where you have a woman who's in this domestic situation, everything seems fine and then invariably it always has something to do with her husband um something happens and she starts to question everything around her like you know um oh is is my husband out to kill me is my husband gaslighting me you know those sort of things and i really felt for the first two-thirds of this film i was so with it and i was like yes this is the specter of paranoid women's film you know it was done so well and i feel like for those first two-thirds rebecca hall really is the main character of the film you mainly follow her you follow her suspicions you follow her discoveries and her her growing sense of dread in that her husband is not only not the person she thought he was she doesn't actually know who he is at all and that was really fascinating but then in the last third 
it's all of a if it all of a sudden turns from her becoming an agent within her own life to her becoming a passive pawn between Jason Bateman and Joel Edgerton's characters and she essentially almost gets swallowed by the narrative and I found that really frustrating and kind of the way that she was used is enormously discomforting. I think you raise a really important point and it's the issue I wrestled with the most and and maybe to an extent I've kind of tried to excuse the film by rationalising it but it is that classic trope isn't it of the woman is only there to be to be under um, attack or to have something horrible happen to her so one man can get revenge on the other. Absolutely. And in fact, this this ending has been done before. There's a film not so long ago from another country that did this exact uh, same ending. Um, having said that, I didn't see it coming in this film, and I still think it, it worked as much as it... No, I, I did think it works. I'm, I'm going to keep trying to qualify why I'm okay with this film. I think the fact that she's such a strong character with so much agency throughout the film goes an awful long way to making the end palatable for me anyway if she was simply there as a passive character who was to be the 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 victim of this or the source of conflict for the two men then it would have been kind of appalling but i think she's i think she's strong enough to kind of take on board what happens at at the end without compromising too much nevertheless what you say is really spot on i think i'm floundering to kind of excuse it any better than i just have (laughs) yeah i'm not sure how to talk about it without giving away too much of the ending but look I think that's a really valid point she does become less prominent within the narrative and that's a little disappointing and I think it's a bit of taking from the right to give to the left because I think ultimately he he does that in order to mount a case against one of the the male characters and play with this idea of property and space and the violation of space and that's I guess how I'm trying to, to, to validate the treatment of the female character and in saying that I think she's still um, she still holds a prominent place within that dynamic at the end of the film. I still think she's, in, in some ways, not completely dismissed and forgotten about, but there are questions about what the potential futures of all these characters are, if I can be as broad as that. Yeah, I'm really glad you raised that issue, though. Oh, good, good. I was worried <laughs> we were getting, going to get into an all-out brawl over something, but it's OK. No, I think, I think it's really valid. I'm still trying to reconcile it. Um, I do want to say, though, I think Joel Edgerton is extraordinary in this film as writer, director and actor. There are scenes in this where he evoked for me a sort of mid-career, early 80s Dennis Hopper. He's got a really unnerving intensity in this film, which works. And just also to throw it away, uh, Jason Bateman, I think, seamlessly kind of falls into this role. Having known him as a comedic actor, he does a really good job. Yeah, I think that's the great thing. All three main actors in this film are amazing. I'd love to see Rebecca Hall in more stuff because it's clear that she can carry a film. And I think, yeah, in particular, Jason Bateman really impressed me with the fact that he was so good at doing, you know, he's, he's played slightly, you know, nefarious characters before, but this is this really lovely, slow, un- Unraveling of just how nasty a person his character is. Three triple R. Straight out of Compton, Haley. What did you make of this? Okay, well, if we're just gonna go straight into it. So Straight Out of Compton is obviously a biopic of the rise and inevitable fall of NWA. It focuses primarily on Dr. Dre, Ice Cube and Easy e Sorry for all those MC Ren and DJ Yeller fans out there. They are unfortunately very much relegated into the background in this film. Um, and it shows them rise up from the streets of Compton as teenagers into DJing and rapping and dealing with uh, the, the realities of being a black person living in California. California in the late 1980s and 
and you see them rise into gangster rap superstardom and then the divisions start, then the arguments happen and everything just falls apart. Um, I think the two most salient things to kind of launch into about this film is the fact that Obviously, it has one a really eerie relevance to the current situation in the US where police on black violence is just rife and you know terrifying and and increasingly of 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 high profile and also secondly that this is a film that happens to be produced by two of the film's subjects and the widow of the third so you kind of get into these questions of where is the truth here is this just an effort at valorization and sanitization or do we have some kind of authentic record of nwa on film it's also directed by a guy called f gary gray who was sort of there directing um, the video clips for these guys right at the very beginning. He, yeah. did, he did music clips for Ice Cube and Dr. Dre. He directed Friday, which was the big comedy vehicle that Ice Cube starred in, which is still a cult film with black Americans. Um, so this is the film the, the band members, well, three out of five of the band members anyway, wanted you uh, to see. Sorry, two out of five and the widow of one wanted you to see. And in fact, one of the others has been quite upset about the film, saying I was really relegated to the sidelines. Um, and there's another really big issue, which I'm sure we'll get to. I won't just throw it in the mix just yet. But uh, look, it, it's difficult. I, I always struggle with films like this, trying to reconcile. Do I? How do I appreciate this film? Do I? Because I really enjoy... If you remove the real world and have this in an isolated vacuum on its own, I really enjoyed this film. I love that... I love the w- interesting cinematography, which is this combination of kind of faux verite handheld on the streets with beautiful scope cinematography that gives you this real epic feel. I love the energy of this film. Um, but, but, you know, it's still fairly conventional biopic stuff. And it, it, it gets a little... I was warned it gets a bit weak towards the end. It's not quite as bad as I'd been warned about, but there are sort of some very contrived, isn't this a bittersweet moment scene? Or, you know, one character talks about their dreams and then you see what happens to them later, and it's, it's a bit too set up. And, and you know, that classic cliche of one character coughs and you know, well, they're screwed, that's it, it's all over for them. So it falls into some of those traps, but I, I actually really, really enjoyed it for what it is but you know these films don't exist in cultural vacuums and there are certain issues about things they do and don't represent that um start to make it a a bit of a troubling product and i I think it is it does feel sanitized even without knowing all the stories behind these guys it does feel sanitized they're presented in really positive lights even when you get scenes depicting some of the more outlandish behavior it's sort of done with a sense of bravado or or good on them like you know when they when a guy comes looking for his girlfriend um because they're having a big kind of groupy orgy that's presented as a very comic moment them chasing him off with with guns and it's actually it's an appalling moment and the way they treat the women in that sequence is appalling the way they treat the boyfriend is is appalling but it's very much played in the film as as laughs. Yeah, and and the fact that it ends with Ice Cube's iconic line from Friday, you know, which was apparently an ad lib by the actor who played Ice Cube, uh, Shea uh, Shea Jackson Jr., who is actually Ice Cube's son and is his dead ringer, and it's really eerie. It is quite eerie, isn't it? Look, I I like the acting in this film Mm. as well, but... um, yeah, the, the really big issue, and we don't have to delve into it right now, but I think it's 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 the the, the misogyny the misogyny element, which is so alive in their lyrics. It's it is there in the film as well. You know, the female characters um, are very much relegated to being half naked groupies or kind of nagging mothers or nagging girlfriends, except for the character playing Easy's wife, who we see later in the film, who, who spots some inconsistency in the books. I mean, you know, the only woman who gets any decent moments is the one who also happened to be a producer on the film, but the big glaring one. 
is some of these guys, in particular Dr. Dre, have a known long history of uh, being very physically violent towards w- women, and that's not dealt with at all in the film. It's not even even referenced. And I think because it's combined with lyrics with a lot of misogyny and this kind of casual depiction of women as half-naked in the background all the time, it's, it's, it's incredibly problematic. Yeah, look, I'm not quite sure where to, to weigh in or where to start weighing into this film. Um, I actually grew up listening to Straight Outta Compton. It was one of those formative albums because clearly as a middle-class white kid growing up on the peninsula, I really connected to the <laughs> experience of black youth growing up um, under incredible prejudice and gang violence in Compton. But I guess... Oh, look, OK, let's deal with a couple of things. The, the aspect of um, historical veracity and, and the treatment of women or, or these ideas of characters. Look, I don't think a biopic necessarily has to adhere to some notion of the truth. I think the idea, and we've discussed this numerous times, yeah. we're dealing with cinematic representation. Yep. So, look, I think uh, I think that's, that's one issue that you could have, particularly in terms of um, the depiction of violence. But what the film s- uh, sacrifices by not doing that and by sanitizing so much for me at least was we just gave us a really series of bland representations this feels like a, a, a really light lifetime channel telly movie and i couldn't i couldn't buy it because i just felt these characters were so saintly and because the structure is uh, is more the traditional biopic that that traces a chronology as opposed to focusing on one key event or one key album and it goes for over two and a half hours the longer this film went on and moves further away from those early sections of the film where they're dealing with the production of straight out of compton which for me were the highlights uh, of the film mm. the, the the more almost tedious i found I, I felt i was losing touch i didn't feel like there was any kind of key dramatic moments and all the all the stuff that was is in the music, particularly in the, the Straight Outta Compton, like the anger, the aggression, the misogyny, the homophobia, like, you know, as much as I appreciate this album, I think it, you have to acknowledge those elements, but it feels like it glossed over so much that it, it didn't feel like a, an angry film. And as you mentioned, Haley, I'm not sure... I can totally kind of give a, a film a pass, given the, what's going on in contemporary America, where, you know, it, it feels like they've sanitised something that's very raw... And almost needs a, a kind of a, a war. I felt more like it should have had a war cry rather than a whimper. Mm. Yeah, I think that the, the thing that really troubles me with the film, like I think I had more closer read um, as as Thomas in that, that watching the film in and of itself, I enjoyed myself. I was entertained, you know, while still having this kind of like oppressive feeling behind me going like you know i i know what this guy these guys music's well music is like i know the the things that they did that did not wind up in the film i mean the big controversy that came out when this film came out was an article was written for gorka by d barnes who was an r&b artist and journalist who in the early 90s fronted a hip-hop show called pump it up and dr dre attacked barnes at a party in 1991 in retaliation against a segment that pumped pump it up screened of Ice Cube dissing his former NWA bandmates. Uh, Dre attempted to throw Barnes down a flight of stairs. He slammed her head against a wall. He kicked her. And this was only one of several on-the-record assaults committed by the musician against women. And the thing that really troubles me is the fact that the cameraman who filmed that inflammatory Cube segment on Pump It Up was straight out of Compton director F. Gary Gray. He was Barnes's cameraman on the show. So all the people involved in this film 
know that this stuff happened because they were there. I didn't they know witnessed that it. extra level of detail. Yeah. yeah. And a lot of these people have, since this article have appeared, have said, no, you're right, we're totally right. I'm sorry, I feel a bit of regret for that. That was a bad call. But, um, you know, that article didn't come out. I'm guessing they wouldn't have said anything at all. I'm guessing, yeah, they were very evasive to mm. any kind of suggestion before the film came out that, you know, this was this was going to be mm. a thing. But by the same token, you know, this, this is the number one film in the US right now. Mm. Like, it's made buckets of money because people want to see stories of people of colour on screen. And other um, uh, filmmakers have come out and said, like, Ava DuVernay did a really great series of tweets straight after she saw it, and she was like, look, as a resident of LA in the early 90s, all of the scenes with the riots and with police intimidation everything like that, she's like, that's what we lived. That's And she felt it had a lot of fidelity to what actually occurred. But then again, you know, you have to bring in this same token of, you know, the, the film is, is essentially a glorifying product for two of the band members and the widow of, of, of a third. So you've really, really got to question, what is it we're seeing here? What do they want us to take away from this? And how do they want us to essentially rewrite their own history in our minds it's really it's a really complicated issue because it's it's incredibly important to celebrate key figures in black history and black culture because they are underrepresented and they have a hell of a fight had and still have that that we can't let's face it we're never going to comprehend because of the privilege we've grown up in that's really important i think it's it's such a pity that they can't see a way to reconcile that with 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 the less positive elements i mean more sophisticated filmmaking can kind of mix up the fact that they weren't saints they may have been incredibly progressive with what they were doing in terms of race and class, but they weren't great as, as, as men. Um, I think it's a missed opportunity. On the, on the same token, I sort of... I remember, you know, when Spike Lee did films like Do the Right Thing, and he was grilled at um, a press conference, I think at Cannes, about why didn't you address drug use? Why didn't you address drug use? That's rampant in these communities. And he said, that's not the film I'm making. You know, I want to make a film exploring these issues. I might do my drug films some other time, but that's not the issue. And, and how dare you say, because I'm a black filmmaker doing this film, I have to address every single problem with the black community. So that's, you know, that's the other, that, that's the other flip side of, of this debate. But Spike was never afraid of, of having some moral ambiguity with his characters. He certainly mm. was not. He's not. Was not. He's not. Well, look, yeah. I, mean, I only saw Do the Right Thing for the first time this year. Yeah. That's what struck me. It's an extraordinary film because it doesn't play easy sides of, of good and bad. It doesn't pretend to have solutions. It doesn't whitewash, you know, I'm, you know, as clumsy a term as that might be in the context of this film. And I think, I think they've obviously made this film by trying to not offend the widest audience and that's probably why it's doing such good box office in in some ways but those scenes you mentioned and and i guess one of the issues i had with this and it's probably a structural one is those scenes that felt like they should have carried a a significant dramatic punch not only in their isolated scene but over the course of the narrative so the 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 murder of, of a sibling of one of the band members the police brutality um the la riots you know, they they carried a certain degree of weight in their own, but by the time we'd moved on to the next scene, it almost felt like we'd just started again. And I had I took real issue with one scene in particular in which a half-naked black man's being savaged by a dog, and it becomes almost window dressing to the scene. The focus is just on another character walking in going, stop behaving badly, you're acting like you're on holiday. And I just thought that was such a loaded image with, with such connotations of the African-American issues in, in slavery, and you look at a way that even Quentin Tarantino handled it in Django and Change in a far more confronting way. And I felt from a moral perspective and an ethical perspective, I'm not sure if you can include that in a scene and then almost dismiss it 
just as quickly? You know what, I looked at that scene in particular. Apparently it's based on something that actually happened and I think maybe it falls into that traditional biopic problem which is they're trying to reenact too many kind of pivotal moments in the story that they don't flesh out the meaning of any of these stories enough, which is a big argument for not doing literal, realistic portrayals yeah. of um, a film. You're better off doing something that creates an impression because that's how cinema language works. Yes, I think in that scene in particular is also feeding into this film definitely has it in for Sugar Knight, who is the fellow suspected in the murders of both Tupac and Biggie Smalls. And I believe he either viciously assaulted or possibly killed someone on the set of this film and is currently in prison. Oh, yeah, there was a... I don't know the full details, but while filming this, apparently someone did... Yeah, drove a car into Yes, the... drove a car into somebody. So th- th- this is a man who is, yeah, no, he doesn't have the best record, but seriously, the way he is presented in this film, he is quite literally Satan from the get-go. Yeah. It's a complex... It's, it's, it, well, it's, I don't think it is a complex film, but it's a film that has raised some really complex issues yeah, well ab- said. about representing the truth, which actually ties in really nicely with the final film we're going to discuss tonight on Plato's Cave. <laughs> Three triple R. The Face of an Angel. It's the new film by the very prolific filmmaker Michael Winterbottom. He's an English filmmaker. This is um he's done twenty five films in the last twenty years. I actually did a quick count before we came in, and I've seen uh, twenty one of them, and only four of them I've disliked. So I'm very much a fan of his work. And this is a film that's done pretty badly. It hasn't had a really good critical response at all. I, I, you know, I looked it up as well, and it's been kind of widely panned for reasons that make complete sense to me. But I really liked it. It's um, it's inspired by a 2007 murder of a British backpacker, a woman named Meredith uh, Kircher. She was quite young, 21 years old. She was on exchange in Italy, uh, Perugia. Um, and at the time, her friend and roommate Amanda Knox was one of the three people who was arrested and then imprisoned for the murder. And this, this actually was quite a big... I remember hearing about this, and I think particularly in England it got a lot of media attention. It was, you know, one young, beautiful woman murdered by another young, beautiful woman. It caused quite a scandal. Knox was released four years later after a successful appeal and got a complete exoneration. Um, And it was very much suggested that the media were extremely culpable at the time of sensationalising the story to the extent that their version of events uh, interfered with the way the Italians' court viewed the evidence. So Winterbottom's film, My Face of an Angel, is a really fascinating attempt to to grapple with some of the issues this raised. The film itself is a fictionalised account of another murder. This time it's in the town Siena, where I I have spent quite a bit of time. The best meal of my life I had in Siena, but that's irrelevant. Um, And we have an English filmmaker played by Daniel Bruhl, which is Interesting casting, actually, uh, named Thomas, so that makes everything good. And he's making a film <laughs> about the murder. Hang on, focus. He's making a film about this fictionalised murder, just as Michael Winterbottom is making a film about a fictionalised murder. And he sort of, we, we hear him say very early in the film through conversation that he reckons that making, um, yeah, doing a fictionalised account of this murder is going to reveal more truth than trying to do an accurate film. So, in other words, the film that the character is making is just like the film Michael Winterbottom has made. And the character even says he's going to change the location because that's going to help the process which is exactly what Winterbottom has done. Winterbottom is very much in self-aware territory. He's done this before but with a lot more humour and overt self-aware winks at the audience. He's done this in films like 24 Hour Party People, Tristram Shandy, both the trip films 
And these are all actually some of my favourite Winterbottom films, and they're extremely funny, they're extremely clever. If handled badly, they would have been unbearably smug, but boy, they work. This film is slightly more subdued, and I think really trying to make a point. I mean, Winterbottom hasn't shied away from kind of campaign-y films before where he wants to make a statement, but this feels like... I don't want to use the word moralising, but, but, but well, I guess it, what, what he's doing, I think he's trying to really make a point about the way the media process stories and deliver them to us in a way that misses the point. So, you know, this character Thomas meets lots of other writers who are involved, lots of journalists and storytellers who are involved with his story. You know, he meets a tabloid writer, a true crime book writer played by Kate Beckinsale. Um, and, you know, all these people talk about the audience wants sex, violence and death. So that's the way it's been packaged. That's the way it's been sold. But he's searching for some kind of truth and he talks about... He wants to make this into you know, a love story and he wants to base it on Dante's Inferno. And this film, of course, is loosely structured on Dante's Inferno. There's even one very strange moment with a big CGI serpent that pops up. What I dug about this film is um, I think it really does make the point of that but by trying to turn these stories into fictions, it devalues the impact of the story. And, I, and this is such a curious anti-genre film that constantly thwarts every single expectation you could possibly have. Every time you think it's going to be a detective film, it, it, it undermines that. When you think it's moving the thriller territory, it undermines that. When you think it's going to be a horror film, it completely undermines that. Uh, Cara Delevingne? Delevingne, yeah. Delevingne. Uh, he's a really interesting character who pops up. She's a young student herself who obviously reminds the character of the dead girl and his own daughter. And throughout the film, he increasingly spends a lot of time with her. And, you know, I'm watching the end of this film thinking, I really hope it doesn't go the way I think it's going to go. And I think the film deliberately wants you to think it's going to go a certain way. And, um, yeah, look, it undermine, undermines expectations all the way into a sense I found really satisfying and, and really quite... Uh, fulfilling, and I think the point that the film makes is ultimately what's important in this story is a young woman's life got cut short, and that's the point this film makes. It doesn't necessarily translate into great viewing experience for many people I acknowledge, but I was quite surprised at how swept away I was by this very unusual film. Yeah, I'm going to second that. Winterbottom is nothing if not an eclectic filmmaker. I mean, if you look over the course of his filmography, the, you know he's worked in a number of different genres and, and forms and styles, and this film in itself is nothing if, if not eclectic as you've just pointed out. Uh, I'm certainly on board with Winterbottom films more often than I'm not and I found that even if Winterbottom doesn't manage to draw all these threads together in uh, uh, necessarily a coherent manner, then I actually like the fact he was wrestling with them and I like the, the way in which he was trying to wrestle with the, these ideas. He's juggling so many elements to this story and I think the, the more you go into the blurring the boundaries between between truth, between story, between artistic intention, um, you know, you're getting into some, some sort of awkward territory. I also find it interesting that Winterbottom is quite outspoken in terms of the way in which he rejects any notion of auteurism in his work. He, he actually rejects it. He says it's a, a capitalist idea that's often applied to filmmakers and it's completely ridiculous for a, a collaborative medium. And yet here you have a, a film which definitely reiterates a number of his preoccupations in recent years. The middle-aged man going through a, a, a crisis. This is you know a staple of things like The Trip. The journalist and, and journalistic integrity. Again, 24-hour party people. The Trip. The blurring of the boundaries between you know fantasy and reality. 
reality and, and, and so on. Again, these are kind of staples of his, of his um, genre. And I, I actually really appreciated the way in which this film works, if, if on no other level, as a sort of discursive analysis of, you know, the I guess the biopic. I mean, it's, it's a funny companion piece to the film we just talked about because it really is the radical, radically kind of divergent approach to these stories. Yeah. Um, so I I had the chance to see this film at last year's Toronto Film Festival. You got your boast in, Thomas, so this is mine now. <laughs> I've, been to, um, I've been to Sienna too, I should have mentioned Oh, it. well. <laughs> so, yeah, I had the chance to see it, and I ended up skipping out because there was, another, there was another event on that I decided to go to instead. And having now finally watched this film, I really do not regret that choice at all because I really have nothing, you know, to say about this film beyond the fact that I was very bored. I was very bored. There was a lot of, you know, oh, we're wandering around Siena. Oh, we're meeting some more journalists. Oh, we have a lot of things to say about journalistic integrity. Daniel Brühl bangs, you know, Kate Beckinsale for a while. <laughs> Cara Delvine shows up and she's the only interesting presence in the entire film. And then, oh, at the end, we're really sad that that girl died. The end. Brühl bangs Beckinsale. That's would have been such a... <laughs> yeah. And, what yeah. a tagline. And I don't know. I tried really hard to try to get into what what Winterbottom was trying to put forth here, but I just found a lot of... I just found a lot of it really clumsy and really obvious, and I don't think the film raised itself out of any sort of, you know, tabloid muck in what it was doing. I think it probably was was rifling through a lot of the same kind of levels and that sort of thing. And, yeah, I don't know. I've been saying for ages that I'm a Michael Winterbottom fan, but I've been realising lately between this and the last film that he did, The Emperor's New Clothes, which was that abhorrent film he did with Russell Brand, which was so tackily put together you could barely call it a coherent film. Um, I've realised that, no, I just like the films he does with Steve Coogan. I just like Steve Coogan. So, yeah. I'm sorry. Well, I've, I've brought down the tone of just being like, no, I have nothing interesting to say about this film at all. Well, to, and to be fair, I will concede that your perspective is probably the majority. I mean, this film has left people really cold. But I, 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 it, I guess it is sort of an academic film. It's sort of almost a, a, a trick film. It's sort of, I don't know, it's made, and maybe it is made for hardcore Michael Winterbottom fans. I mean, you know, even looking at films like Welcome to Sarajevo and um, A Mighty Heart, you know, other films about grappling with journalism, it's sort of yeah you're right josh for someone who's very anti-auteur this is a really not only is it a self-reflexive film but it's very self-referential to his career as as well i am yeah, i'm gonna be the diplomat and say i totally understand why this film would leave people cold and bore them but i i really really enjoyed it and why it probably didn't get a theatrical release i mean that's i guess yeah. that's I've got a very small run here at acme but yeah it's it's not very commercial. I mean, it's sort of even though it's beautiful location, beautiful people. It it, it um it feels like or it feels like a, a minor vendors film in many ways too. Well, actually, that's a really nice comparison. I think if nothing else, it, um, Cara Delvine is a star to watch out for. She's not just a model. She's so natural and confident, and charismatic in this film. She's she, actually the best thing in this film. Oh, easily by far and away. Like I, the, the only portions of the film where I actually you know wasn't getting actively distracted was whenever she was on screen, and I kind of came away from it just going, wow, I really hope that someone 
you know, a, a really good auteur directors kind of turn to her and use her because she has an extraordinary presence. This is Plato's Cave. We're going to be signing off. Uh, the Gift is in cinemas on wide release through Roadshow Films. Straight Outta Compton is in cinemas on wide release through Universal Pictures. And The Face of an Angel is available on home entertainment through Man Man Entertainment. You've been listening to myself, Thomas Cordwell, with Josh Nelson, Alexandra Helen Nicholas. We'll be back in the cave next week. And a huge, insane, massive thank you to Hayley Inch for joining us tonight as a fairly last-minute special guest presenter. Hayley, thank you. Oh, it was a ridiculous pleasure. Thank you for having me. Uh, you have held your own and then some, so I hope we get to hear from you again and have you join us again. Josh is furiously nodding. Good. Um, good night. This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.